Hello everyone, this is Annie, and you're listening to Heroes and Zeros, a true crime podcast. Hey there, all of you little ghosts and goblins. I hope you're all having some fun during this crispy fall spooky season. Well, maybe it's not crispy where you're living, but here in Iowa, it just got real, real chilly. So this is episode 75 titled Tricks, No Treats in honor of the 2023 Halloween season. I'm bringing you a collection of short stories that are spooky, strange, unexplained, and most importantly, true. And the first collection is from Esquire.com. And the first story is titled The Enfield Monster. In 1973, a man in Enfield, Illinois told reporters that he saw a weird little creature lurking in his yard. Per the Mount Vernon Register News, resident Henry McDaniel stated, it had three legs on it, a short body, two little short arms, and two pink eyes as big as flashlights. The police later found scratches on the door screen and footprints that looked like a dog's, but with six toes. And quote, if they do find it, McDaniel said in the newspaper, quote, they will find more than one and they won't be from this planet, I can tell you that. End quote. To this day, no explanation has ever been found. That is a short story. <laughs> Our next one is kind of one of my favorites called The Haunted Doll. When you think of haunted dolls, it's likely the creepy old Victorian looking porcelain kind that springs to mind. None of which you probably have just laying around, I'm sure. Still, Don't get too comfortable around any kid toys too soon, though. A Disney Frozen Elsa doll that was gifted for a Christmas in 2013 in the Houston area made headlines earlier this year when it seemingly became haunted. Per KPRC2 Houston News, the doll recited phrases from the movie Frozen and sang, Let it go. when a button on its necklace was pressed. One of my granddaughters has this very doll. Well, not this particular doll. Hers isn't haunted. For two years, it did that in English, Mother Emily Madonia said. In 2015, it started doing it alternating between Spanish and English. There wasn't a button that changed these. It was just random. The family has owned the doll for more than six years and has never changed its batteries. The mother says the doll would randomly begin to speak and sing even when its switch was turned off. The family decided to throw the creepy doll out in December of 2019. Weeks later, they found it inside a bench in their living room. And the kids insisted that they didn't put it in there, and I believed them because they wouldn't have dug through the garbage outside, Madonia told the KPRC2 Houston News. That is so hard to say. KPRC2. Okay, that wasn't hard that time, was it? <laughs> At that point, the Elsa doll ceased to sing the English rendition of Let It Go altogether and started speaking only in Spanish when pressed. The family then double-bagged the bizarre doll and placed it at the bottom of their garbage, which was taken out on garbage day. They went on a trip shortly after, but when they returned, Elsa too had come back and was waiting in the backyard of their home. This time, the family mailed 
Elsa to a family friend in Minnesota, I'm sure they're like, oh, thanks, <laughs> who that friend taped the haunted doll to the front bumper of his truck. And it doesn't seem to have made its way back to Houston yet, as per Madonia's latest February Facebook update on the creepy doll. So I did a little Facebook search for Emily Madonia. Then what pops up are, like usual, a lot of Emily Madonias. But then I typed in Texas area haunted doll. And then you get like groups that have haunted dolls and other haunted things. So anyway, if you want, do a little search, see what you find out. And if you find out something really cool, why don't you email me? Heroes to the number two zeros and more with Anne spelled out at gmail.com. The next story up is called The Suicide Hotel. In Colombia, the Hotel de Salto has more stories as one of the most haunted places on earth more than it actually has tenants. Hotel de Salto, which translates quite literally to Hotel of the Leap, has purportedly been haunted for decades. They turned the hotel into a museum, and the hotel itself was designed by architect Carlos Arturo Tapias. If I'm butchering all those names, I'm really sorry. Back in 1923, overlooking the Tequendama Falls. The views are said to be spectacular, but guests kept getting a little too close to the falls. The Hotel de Salto is full of stories of people actually leaping to their deaths. Tequendama, the name of the nearby waterfall near the Hotel de Salto, means the one who tumbled down in the Muisca Chibcha indigenous language. The indigenous allegedly plunged into the Tequendama Falls to avoid being captured by Spanish invaders who had begun conquering South America in the 1500s. Muisca, on the other hand, would metamorphose rather than die. Some centuries before, according to local legend, this indigenous Muisca tribe would escape from the Spanish conquistadors by leaping off the cliffs centuries before. Apparitions have reportedly stalked the grounds ever since. Next up, the Axe Murder House, which happens to take place in my little home state of Iowa, I don't know why I said it in a southern accent. The Velisca Axe Murder House in Velisca, Iowa is a well-known tourist attraction for ghost hunters and horror lovers alike. The site of a gruesome, unsolved 1912 murder in which six children and two adults had their skulls completely crushed by the axe of an unknown perpetrator was purchased in 1994, restored to its 1912 condition, and then converted into a tourist destination. We as a human species are so strange, aren't we? Myself included. It costs $420 a night to stay at the old haunted home where visitors always report strange paranormal experiences such as visions of a man with an axe roaming the halls or the faint screams of children. But in November of 2014, the haunting took a darker turn. Robert Stephen Larson Jr., who is 37 years old, of Rhinelander, Wisconsin, was on a regular recreational paranormal visit with friends when true horror struck. Per Vice, his companions found him stabbed in the chest, an apparently self-inflicted wound they called 911, and Larson was brought to a nearby hospital before being helicoptered to Creighton University Medical Center in Omaha. The Montgomery County Sheriff's Office said that Larson suffered the self-inflicted injury at about 12.45 a.m., which is around the same time that the 1912 axe murders in the house began. Larson did recover from his injuries, but
but he has never spoken publicly about what occurred that day. For Martha Lynn, who is the owner of the home, the incident was incredibly upsetting. And she says, quote, It's publicity, but it's not exactly the kind of publicity you desire to have. I don't want people thinking that when they come to the Velisca Axe murder house that something's going to happen that's going to make them do something like that, end quote. As I'm sure you would not want people to think that, Martha Lynn, because then nobody would stay there, including myself. That is horrible. The house remains open for tourist visits and overnight stays to this day. Up next, a deadly exorcism. In August 2016, in North London, 26-year-old Kennedy Ife began acting strange and aggressive following a pain in his throat. He reportedly bit his father, threatened to cut off his own penis, and complained of a python or snake was inside of him before his family restrained him to a bed with cable ties using excessive force. As the BBC reported, the family then set about attempting to cure Kennedy through restraint and prayer over the next three days, the court was told. His brother Colin Ife told police, quote, It's clear that that thing was in him, what we believed was a demon, because it was not natural. It was clearly trying to kill him, he said. We had to restrain him for himself. It was clear that if we didn't restrain him, he could have tried to harm people in our family. Kennedy Ife had been bound to his bed for three days without medical attention when his brother called emergency services explaining that Kennedy Ife was complaining of dehydration. He appeared to have developed breathing issues and was pronounced dead at 10.17 a.m. As the Independent reported, while police were at the house, Colin Ife allegedly carried out an attempted resurrection by chanting and praying for Mr. Ife. All seven of Kennedy Ife's family members were accused of manslaughter, false imprisonment, and causing or allowing the death of a vulnerable adult. A post-mortem examination revealed over 60 wounds, including a possible bite on Kennedy Ife's body and his father, Kenneth Ife, along with four of his brothers, sustaining injuries as well. The BBC reported Kenneth Ife told jurors that he ordered his sons to take shifts and use, quote, overwhelming force, end quote, but denied that an association with cults or the occult and secret societies played any part in the death. After a four-day jury deliberation, all seven family members were cleared of charges on March 14, 2019. 2019. It sounds like we're talking about something from the, I don't know, 1910, 1800s. Okay, next up, the death of Elisa Lamb. Elisa Lamb was last seen on January 31st, 2013 in the lobby of the Cecil Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. She was vacationing through the West Coast, documenting the trip on her blog and checking in with her parents every day. On January 31st, those calls stopped. Lamb had vanished. Soon the police were involved and her parents arrived to help with the search. They had nothing. That February, LAPD released elevator surveillance footage of Lamb before her disappearance. The footage shows Lamb behaving strangely in the elevator, appearing to talk with invisible people, peering around the corner of the door, crouching in the corner, and opening and closing the door. 
But what exactly is going on in this video raises more questions than answers. Theories range from psychotic episodes to demonic possession to unknown assailants just out of the camera's view. Around that time, hotel guests started reporting weird things happening with the Cecil Hotel water supply. The shower was awful, said Sabina Bao, who spent eight days there during the investigation. Quote, when you turned the top on, the water was coming black first for two seconds, and then it was going back to normal. The tap water tasted horrible, and it had a very funny, sweetie, disgusting taste. It's a very strange taste. I can barely describe it. End quote. Before a week, they never complained. They never thought anything of it. They just thought it was the way it was there. On the morning of February 19th, a hotel employee climbed to the roof and used a ladder to investigate the hotel's water storage tanks. That's where authorities found the decomposing naked body of Lamb, whose personal items were found nearby. After an autopsy, her death was labeled accidental. Yeah, because I think most people like to climb to the top of a water tower while they're staying in a hotel and then accidentally fall in. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm being facetious here. NBC Los Angeles reported at the time about the strange circumstances in the hotel's past. The tank has a metal latch that can be opened, but authorities said that access to the roof is secured with an alarm and a lock. The single-room occupancy hotel has an unusual history. The night stalker, Richard Ramirez, who was found guilty of 14 slayings in the 1980s, actually lived on the 14th floor for several months in 1985. And international serial killer Jack Unterweger is suspected of murdering three prostitutes during the time that he lived there in 1991. I covered this serial killer in episode 59 titled The Vienna Woods Killer, so take a listen. Unterweger killed himself in jail in 1994. In 1962, a female occupant jumped out of one of the hotel's windows, killing herself and a pedestrian on whom she landed. In February 2021, a Netflix documentary called Crime Scene, The Vanishing at the Cecil Hotel, explored Elisa's tragic case and the history of the cursed Cecil Hotel. I believe that is the name of the movie, Cursed Cecil Hotel, and Cecil is C-E-C-I-L. Up next, the unrest stop. I was driving across country with my mom and sister when I was 16, and my sister was 20. It was late, but we were well-rested still and alert. We were driving along on interstate and needed gas and a bathroom break, so we stopped at the only rest stop that was at about 200 miles. There was a van full of teenagers on a road trip at the gas station, as well as a small gray car parked at the pump in front of us with two young men standing still outside of it. When we got there, everything just felt wrong. We'd been on the road for days and seen many rest stops at night and had never been afraid until then. My mom and sister went inside and I stayed in the car. I heard the teenagers say that they were creeped out and couldn't get the pump to work and then they just left in a hurry. I was watching the car in front of us, and the two men had not moved at all. Not a muscle, not an inch. They weren't talking, they weren't on their phones. They were just standing there, still as stone. My sister and mom came running back to the car, and when they got in, the two men slowly turned to look at us while not moving 
or pivoting the rest of their bodies. And I swear to effing shit, we all saw the same thing. They had eyes, dark as pitch and empty. Truly empty, not black, not reflecting any light at all, just a void. We sped out of there and didn't stop until we were in the next city. The worst thing about the entire experience? We couldn't find the place on any map. We knew exactly which spot on the interstate to look and we couldn't find it on Google Maps or any paper map that we had. We even decided to ask locals about the creepy gas station out on that stretch of road and we got some confused looks. We've traveled on that interstate since and there is no rest stop. The next story titled, It Came For Us In The Graveyard. We were driving my friend's really old beat up Subaru through a massive graveyard. We stopped and walked down a hill and came across a little pond. There was someone sitting on a rock on the other side of the pond. The figure was all black, and we couldn't make out any features other than the fact it looked like a man who was wearing some old-style top hat. We stupidly waved and shouted, Hi! He didn't show any acknowledgement and continued sitting still on the rock. All of a sudden, he jumped to his feet, started running to us on the water, and then vanished in thin air about halfway on the pond. My friends and I screamed and ran back to the car. The car wouldn't start and we heard something banging on the back of the car. It wasn't a constant bang, but every few seconds or so, we'd hear it. Nobody was outside from what we could see in the dark, but something was making a noise on the car. I opened my phone and started dialing my mom to come give us a booth, but I had no service. None of us had any cell service. The next 30 minutes were spent trying to get her car started. No banging was heard afterwards, but we felt this heavy pressure around us. Finally, the car started, and she hit the pedal to the metal, and we sped out of the graveyard so fast. Immediately crossing the gates, all of our phones all of a sudden regained cell service. One thing I know for certain is that there was someone or something out there, and it was not an animal or a human. Up next, evicted by a ghost. Shortly after college, I got married. We immediately moved into a basement apartment because that's all that was available within our budget. This place had a poltergeist and my wife was terrified. Whatever resided there with us made it clear that it wanted to live alone. Dishes, glasses, and other items would just fly off the shelf randomly. My wife was actually hit several times. There was always an ominous feeling, like, like we were being watched. At night, when we walked through the apartment in the dark, there would be insanely bright flashes of light that would illuminate the entire room. And one night, while we were going to bed, as soon as my wife and I walked into the bedroom, we heard a voice from nowhere say, Let's just say my name is Ed because I'm not giving anybody my name. Ed, move. My wife looked at me, and I looked at her, and then I said loudly, Hey, you got it, bud. We moved out two days later and stayed with family. There was a little old lady who owned the place, and she died just a few months later, and then the house was torn down. It is still an empty lot to this day, nothing but grass and a tree, and I still drive by it every now and again. Up next... We have a theme here, the ghost truck stop. On his way to get married, a military man and his best man set off on an 800-mile road trip from Camp Lejeune in North Carolina to Lafayette, Indiana. 
It's 1 a.m. on a cold January night in 2014, and the man tells the podcast host, Monsters Among Us, hey, let's all check that out, that the weather is bad and the temperatures are going to be in the negative double digits. Burr, that is cold. As the pair close in on Indianapolis, they discover that they have no money to pay for gas to refuel the car, and that is no place and the temperatures are not conducive for running out of gas. Growing up in the trucking industry, the man decided that he wanted to stop at a truck stop. But because the main interstates were shut down due to the weather, they had to get off the highway and search for a truck stop along the back roads instead. They found a smaller truck stop. It had one truck, and it was just kind of strange. It was just a blacked-out truck with a blacked-out trailer. There were no real markings on it, just nothing distinguishable. They went in hoping a clerk or a waitress would spot them a few dollars for gas, enough to make it to Indianapolis, at which time they would go to the bank, take out cash, and come back and pay the loan. Inside, they found a tidy little diner, occupied by a waitress, a cook, and a lone truck driver. They went inside and talked to the truck driver, and he bought them a cup of coffee. They sat there and talked for about 30 minutes about what was going on and and why they were headed where they were headed and kind of what they were all doing. And they gave him 20 bucks for gas. The military man went outside, pumped the gas, went back in and told him, Hey, I really appreciate it. I'm going to be back. Making good on his word, the man got cash from the bank upon arriving in Indianapolis and returned to the diner. When they arrived at about 10 o'clock in the morning, it was boarded up. It looked like it had been abandoned for years and the truck was gone. But they had just been in there. They pull in anyway, and then they find a police officer that was parked in the parking lot. They explain what happened just hours, to which the cop chuckles and replies, Oh, you met the ghost of three. So, two military members converse, had a cup of coffee, interacted with three people at a diner, and it had a fuel pump. They got $20 worth of gas. And then, when he goes back, it had been boarded up. For if he remembered correctly, the cop said it had been boarded up for the last 25 years. Up next, this is one of my favorite stories. It's titled, It Was Good to See an Old Friend. When I was 37, I went to my high school reunion. I flew into the nearest airport and rented a car. The distance was about 35 miles through a very rural and almost abandoned part of the country. About three miles outside of town, I see someone on the side of the road flagging me down. It turned out that it was one of the guys I had attended school with. I actually knew him. So I'm going to call this guy Jim. It's not his real name, but Jim gets in the car and we just start talking. I had not seen him in 20 years, but he still looked the same. Maybe just a bit older, but man, he looked pretty good. We get to town and I ask him if he wants to come to the VFW with me and have a drink. And he just says, no, just take me home. Jim's parents had lived only a few blocks from my grandmother's house. And so I turned in that direction but he said to take him to the outskirts of town. There was a mobile home park out there, and I figured that is where he lived. When we reached the end of the turnoff, he said, just drop me here. It was good to see you again. And he walks off into the night. I go to the VFW, a little bummed that that my friend didn't come with me, but I met some of my old classmates, and we just start talking. As we're talking about who is coming to the reunion, I mentioned that I had just picked Jim up about three miles east of town, and had just dropped him off. Everyone gets very quiet. Even the guy that was singing karaoke stopped and laid down his microphone. 
my cousin goes white as a new t-shirt. Barb, he says. Jim died on that curve eight years ago. He rolled his car. We were all at his funeral. Oh my gosh, I started to feel so dizzy. And then I went out to the car to take some deep breaths. I just had, what was going on? There on the seat is the local newspaper printed eight years previously containing Jim's obituary. I still have that newspaper. Up next, the story is titled, Florida Devil Worshipping. Of course, it takes place in Florida. (laughs) Sorry, you Floridians. You should listen to Weird AF News with Jonesy. He has Florida Fridays. Oh my goodness. Hilarious. (laughs) So, the Florida Devil Worshipping story goes like this. Friends noticed that Danielle Harkins, a 35-year-old school teacher near St. Petersburg, Florida, started acting strangely in June of 2012, developing an interest in demonic rituals. Soon after, she was arrested for abuse of seven of her former students, as the Tampa Bay Times reported. Daniel Harkins told the kids that they needed to rid their bodies of demons as the group gathered before dusk on Saturday around a small fire near the St. Petersburg Pier. They should cut their skin to let the evil spirits out, police said, she told the children. Then they needed to burn the wounds to ensure that those spirits would not return. When Harkins held a lighter to one teen's hand, wind blew the flame out, police said. That prompted her to douse his hand in perfume before setting it on fire. The boy suffered second-degree burns, police said. Another teen was cut on the neck with a broken bottle, police said. Harkins used a flame to heat a small key, which she then used to cauterize the wound. The police were notified because a friend of one of the students who participated in the ritual raised alarms. Good job, teen. However, none of the students themselves told their parents about the event or would even comment following the arrest of Harkins for aggravated battery and child abuse. NBC reported, investigators said that they've spoken to Harkins, but she didn't spell out what type of religion would require such drastic measures. She hasn't informed the police exactly what she was trying to accomplish with this, according to the St. Petersburg Police Department. Up next, an exorcism in Indianapolis. Last year, the Indianapolis Star published a lengthy report on a family that was terrorized by three children allegedly possessed by demons. The account of Latoya Ammons and her family tells disturbing stories of children that were climbing up the walls, getting thrown across rooms, and children threatening doctors in deep, unnatural voices. It would seem like something straight out of a movie, a work of fantasy, except all of these accounts were more or less corroborated with nearly 800 pages of official records that were obtained by the Indianapolis Star and recounted in more than a dozen interviews with police, DCS personnel, psychologists, family members, and a Catholic priest. One of the more chilling sections of the report includes a segment about the possessed nine-year-old. According to Washington's original DCS report, an account corroborated by Walker, the nurse, the nine-year-old had a weird grin and walked backwards up a wall to the ceiling. He then flipped over Campbell and landed on his feet. Yeah, that'd be freaking freaky. (laughs) The child never let go of his grandmother's hand. What? (laughs) Poor grandma, that would hurt. Another segment of her piece reads, The 12-year-old would later tell mental health professionals that she sometimes felt as if she were being choked and held down 
so that she couldn't speak or move. Oh, the poor baby. She said she heard a voice say that she'd never see her family again and would not live for another 20 minutes. This story, I think, has enough background information that I think it might be fun or interesting to research it and cover it in an upcoming episode. Hey, so if you guys would like to hear more about the Indianapolis exorcism, email us and let me know. Up next, the phone stalker. In 2007, ABC News documented a series of cell phone calls to families with terrifyingly specific death threats. The unidentified callers knew exactly what families were doing and what they were wearing. The families say the calls came in at all hours of the night, threatening to kill their children, their pets, and their grandparents. Voicemails arrived playing recordings of their private conversations, including one with a local police detective. The caller knows, the family said, what they're wearing and what they're doing. And after months of investigating, police seem powerless to stop them. I hope I'm saying this name correctly. This went on with the Cucanal family for months, who reported a caller with a scratchy voice threatening to slit their throats. When the Furcrest Washington police tried to find the culprit, the calls were traced back to the Cucandals' own phones, even when they were turned off. And it got worse. The Cucandals and two other Furcrest families told ABC News they believe the callers are using their cell phones to spy on them. They say that the hackers know their every move, where they are, what they're doing, what they're wearing. As we've heard repeatedly, it just sounds terrifying. And to think that someone could hack into your own phone and watch what you're doing. I think I'm going to start plugging in my phone and having it turned against the wall. The callers have recorded private conversations, the families and police said, including a meeting with a local detective. Up next, the watcher. After moving into their $1.3 million dream home, a New Jersey family started receiving creepy death threats from someone who identified themselves as the watcher. As CBS News reported earlier this year, since moving in, the owner said that they have received numerous letters from the mysterious person. The watcher claimed the home has been the subject of my family for decades, and I have been put in charge of watching and waiting for its second coming. Okay, watcher, you're a little creepy. The new owners have several children and other letters asked, quote, Have they found out what's in the walls yet? And, I am pleased to know your names now and the name of the young blood you have brought to me. End quote. The family was forced to flee from their home and later filed a lawsuit against the previous owners. Netflix actually made a movie based on these events titled The Watcher, and it stars Naomi Watts and Bobby Cannavale. The next creepy story is Issei the Cannibal. In 1974, 24-year-old Waco University student Issei Sagawa allegedly followed a German woman to her home in Tokyo, Japan broke into her apartment while she was sleeping and attempted to cut a piece of flesh off of her body to eat. When she awoke, she reportedly fought him and he was later captured by the police. According to a 2012 Vice documentary that covered Issei's bizarre story, he was mistakenly charged with attempted rape and his wealthy father paid the victim a settlement outside of court to have the charges dropped. Seven years later, in 1981, he allegedly committed a murder in France, shooting and then eating a fellow university student named Rene Hartevelt. 
Issei creepily documented the entire experience with photographs, and he was actually captured by authorities once again while attempting to dump the rest of her body in the Bois de Boulogne Lake. He was deported back to Japan and committed to a mental institution. For reasons unknown, his psychologists in Japan declared that he was sane. Oh, yeah, duh. Everybody likes eating flesh off of a human. Hello. Furthermore, a legal technicality involving the French government refusing to turn over the documents from his case meant that his murder charges were dropped completely. Oh, that's good. That's great. Good job. He checked himself out of the mental hospital and has reportedly been walking the streets as a free man ever since. Issei has even become a controversial celebrity, writing over 20 books. According to Japan Today, he most recently fantasized about an unnamed TV actress saying, quote, I'll catch a glimpse of her thigh and think, mm, that sure looks tasty, but I don't feel like I actually want to eat it. As I accomplished the act of cannibalism once, there's no meaning to maintaining the desire for it anymore. In my book, I wrote that it, meaning human flesh, was tasty, but that was not really true. I'd much rather eat Matsuzaka Kobe beef. But because I desired to consume human flesh for so long, I'd managed to convince myself that it would necessarily be delicious. End quote. Issei Sagawa was also referenced in the Rolling Stones song, Too Much Blood, with the lyrics reading, quote, And when he ate her, he took her bones to the Bois de Boulogne. He is currently 73 years old and continues to live in Kawasaki City, Japan. To this day, no one knows why France did not allow Japan to give him a trial. Our next story is found in the Travel Channel on Reddit, and it's called The Walking Dead. I'm a psychiatric nurse, and early in my career, I worked at a residential mental health facility. One of our residents was an elective mute, which means that he didn't, wouldn't, or couldn't talk but there were no medical reasons as to why. He had spoken earlier in his life and, in fact, seemed quite normal back then, with the exception of being close to seven feet tall. That's a tall dude. He'd been raised in the Deep South and joined the military when he was 19, but one night, he vanished. He was declared AWOL, and eventually, he was declared missing and then dead. Ten years later, a seven-foot-tall man walked into a VA hospital emergency room in my part of the Midwest and said to the receptionist, quote, My name is Marion Duchesne, not the real name, and I've been dead for ten years. End quote. Those were the last words he ever spoke. He was covered with dust, and he was wearing the same clothes that he'd been reported to be wearing the night he vanished. His social security number had not been used, and he had no identification on his person. However, they were able to identify him via fingerprints. The family was notified, but they said they already had grieved their lost man and that whomever was claiming to be him simply could not be, and they demanded not to be contacted again. Okay, people, did they not know that his fingerprints matched? And did they never have a body? I mean, I need to know that part, I guess. The story doesn't say, so maybe they did bury him, and saw his body and just thought, this person is not our family member. Marion Duchesne paced all day, every day, moving his mouth that looked like he was talking or muttering, 
but no sound came out. And he had an unnerving habit of throwing his head back with his mouth wide open as if he were laughing heartily, but not even a breath could be heard. If I talked to him, he appeared to listen periodically, throwing his head back in that laughter-mimicking way of his. Various medications were tried, but they did not affect him either positively or negatively. They had absolutely no impact on him. Occupational therapy did nothing because Marion would just grin and unless told to stay put, he would just get up and start pacing again. On my last day at that job, the last thing I saw was Marion pacing in the parking lot, throwing his head back to laugh. Later, I wondered if all along I'd been dealing with a ghost. And all these years later, I still don't know. Up next, the Death March. My dad used to work as a corrections officer at a rural prison. He drove the perimeter of the property for his entire shift where he would check empty buildings for runaway inmates. It was generally a boring job. One night, my dad was parked on a hill reading a magazine when he started to feel a thumping in his body. He described it as the feeling that you get when speakers are playing a song that has a really heavy bass. He put the magazine down and checked into his rearview mirror where he saw someone outside the truck. He grabbed his pistol and jumped out of the truck with his weapon drawn. Outside the truck, he realized it was a procession of Native Americans walking through the truck and directly through his seat, only to disappear at the exact spot that he was sitting. He said that it was clear they were ghosts because many of them appeared injured. I think it should also be noted that the fact that they were walking through the truck and through where he was sitting and then disappear, I would think that they're ghosts too. <laughs> I think that should have also been a good indicator. This went on for a few seconds, and then the whole procession just disappeared. He called the other perimeter guy on his walkie-talkie to try to explain, and the other guy almost immediately stopped communicating. And it turns out that the other guy had seen this happen before, but didn't believe in ghosts so he wasn't going to talk about it. Up next, the demon's room. I worked as a forensic nurse in a hospital's lockup unit. We had one older lady who swore she was being haunted and abused by a demon that she called Tiberius. So many crazy things happened while she was on the unit. We'd go into the room, do normal care, leave, and seconds later, she'd start screaming bloody murder. We'd run into the room to find her looking like she'd just been in a fight with a boxing champ. She had a bloody lip, a black eye, and markings would be all over her body. No one ever saw her doing this stuff to herself, but things would get moved around the room all by themselves. At one point, she was in protective restraints because the doctor thought that she probably was hurting herself. There was no way, though, that she could have moved or done anything to herself while in these restraints, but new marks would always appear or her tray cart would be across the room. The room was secure so that there was no way someone else was doing this. When we asked her questions, she'd just say, it was Tiberius. After she was discharged, we always had trouble with that room. If there was going to be a rapid response or code, it happened in that room. One night, a guard reported lights blinking on and off. It was in that room. That concludes our spooky Halloween ghosty stories, and I hope you like them. If any of you guys have stories 
that are weird or spooky or supernatural, or you know of a case that you would like to have me cover, why don't you shoot me an email? Heroes to zeros and more at gmail.com. Thanks, everybody. Please subscribe and share. Bye bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please subscribe and share. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.